welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series three and episode three. And uh, this episode is entitled The Nazareth Manifesto. It's about what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, just to define what his ministry was going to be like, what was going to happen when the kingdom of God uh, came or was coming through um, everything that he was doing. We're going to read the, the text in a moment, which will be from Luke chapter 4. But first of all, let's just remind ourselves of the situation, which we described in um, some previous episodes. After Jesus's baptism and going into the wilderness and going up to Jerusalem, he eventually came back to Galilee. And that's the situation that's in the background of this particular episode. He came back to Galilee. And as soon as he came back, he started preaching. He started saying that the kingdom of God had arrived, that people needed to respond to the arrival of the kingdom of God. He went from place to place teaching. Uh, he taught in the Jewish places of worship, their synagogues, um, and he also started performing um, miracles, healings and deliverances from evil powers or evil forces operating within people. This story has already begun to happen. It's been going on for a little bit of time in Galilee, the northern province of uh, the nation of Israel, far away from the capital city in the south, Jerusalem. Um, here in the north, things were beginning to happen. Very, very dramatic things. Things that indicated something unique was happening. Now, I want to just describe to you a little bit the situation in Jesus's hometown, because this story that we're going to look at in this episode deals with Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. The interesting thing is that he hasn't been in Nazareth since he left several months uh, prior to this event to go to the River Jordan and to be baptised by John the Baptist. So the residents of Nazareth, the people who'd known Jesus for about 30 years, known him all his life, would have been hearing many stories about things that he was doing and what had happened to him. Quite dramatic, remarkable stories, but they, for the most part, hadn't seen him unless they'd travelled to other places. He'd come back to Galilee, he'd been operating down by the Sea of Galilee, a few kilometres away, based in a, a little town called Capernaum. He'd been to a nearby town called uh, Cana, where he'd performed a couple of miracles uh, that we've looked at, where the royal official's son was healed and uh, water was turned into wine in a wedding. So there were many stories circulating about Jesus. But from the point of view of people living in Nazareth, they hadn't really seen this amazing transformation. What they knew was that Jesus belonged to an upright family, Joseph and Mary's family. What they knew was that he had four brothers, by the way, their names are given to us in the Gospels, and some sisters, we don't know how many sisters he had. So he was the oldest son in a large family. The family business was carpentry 
and building, so Jesus would have spent many years working in the family trade. His stepfather Joseph may well have died by this time. He's not mentioned in the Gospels. Mary and all the other brothers and sisters are specifically mentioned. So from the point of view of those in Nazareth, they knew Jesus as a godly, uh, hard-working young man, single, who carried on his uh, family business and attended synagogue and was very devout and godly. They also, of course, knew the amazing stories surrounding his birth, but that took place in Bethlehem a long way away. But suddenly they're confronted with a changed man. They heard about him, but in this episode, we're going to, uh, to see the moment when Jesus actually returns for the first time to his hometown after he started his ministry and he's become somewhat different. He's taken on a different identity. He's now performing, he's now um, living his life as the uh, son of God, the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, rather than just the carpenter's son. So that's the background. Now, our passage is uh, Luke 4, and we're going to read from verses 14 to 30. We've already looked at 14 and 15 in a previous episode, but I'm going to read them again. Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, 
but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went away. It's a very dramatic scene that is unfolding uh, before us. The first visit of Jesus back to Nazareth, the level of expectation and interest was enormous. And when he was in the synagogue uh, and given the opportunity to make the reading from the Hebrew scriptures, everyone was wondering which passage he would choose. It seems that he chose this passage. He was given the scroll of Isaiah. Every book of the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament in those days, was in the form of a scroll made of, of parchment, made of, of animal skin, dried animal skin, and rolled up. So you had to unroll it to find the place that you wanted to study or to read. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And the passage he chose is remarkable and surprising. It's the first few verses from Isaiah chapter 61. And this particular passage is one of a group of passages in Isaiah, the last of a particular group, which describes the work of a person that Isaiah prophesies will come to Israel, who is known as the servant of the Lord. There are other passages to study uh, that tell us about this person in earlier parts of Isaiah. We can find references in Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, Isaiah 49, 1 to 7, Isaiah 50, 4 to 9, and Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, 12. Now, those are passages that are prophecies about a person who Isaiah identifies as the servant of the Lord. And this person is going to come, uh, bring salvation to Israel, give a message of salvation to the Gentile nations, be a light to the Gentile nations. This is a person who's going to come and suffer and die, which we see particularly in Isaiah 53. And then in Isaiah 61, we see the ministry or the work of this person, this mysterious servant of the Lord, described in detail. We know that this servant of the Lord is another description of the Messiah, the Son of God. So in this passage, which Jesus describes as being fulfilled in that moment, taking place right at that time, there are a number of things stated about this servant of the Lord. In fact, there are five things stated. So I want to just mention these five things to you so you're clear what Jesus is really saying and why I'm calling this a manifesto. 
It's, it's a spiritual manifesto, a bit like a politician might bring a political manifesto to say, uh, these are the things that I intend to do when I'm in office as a political leader. So Jesus, as a spiritual leader, having been anointed with the Holy Spirit, having been identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, and having been commissioned to start his ministry, he now says here definitively, the things that uh, he will do and the things that will happen. This is the only place in the Gospels that he makes such a definition. This incident isn't recorded in the other three Gospels. So let's just have a, have a closer look at the things that are actually stated. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, when did this anointing take place? Well, it took place by the River Jordan. Because at that point, when... Jesus came up out of the river having been baptised by John. The Father's voice is heard from heaven and the Holy Spirit comes on him in bodily form like a dove. We saw this described in earlier episodes. And this is the moment when the power of the Spirit came on Jesus to fulfil his ministry. You'll notice in verse 14 that this point is made by Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit has enabled him, first of all, to proclaim good news to the poor. So he's starting proclaiming truth, proclaiming what we call the gospel, especially to those in need, the poor, economically, socially, physically, mentally, psychologically, people who are poor for one reason or another, who are in need of help. Those are the priority not excluding other people, but there's a priority here of Jesus' ministry. So it's a preaching ministry, number one. He's been anointed to preach and to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. This is almost certainly a poetic way of describing the freedom from the imprisonment of sin. Sin imprisons us. It controls us. We don't really have a control over our life if sin is the dominant force. And the New Testament teaches us, especially Paul in Romans teaches us, that sin is like a driving force inside us. It's not just individual actions, it's an inner force, a selfishness of an orientation away from God, a, a desire to be independent of God, to do things our own way, to control our own lives and destiny. And Jesus said, I came to proclaim freedom for people who are imprisoned by sin through the good news that's being proclaimed. In other words, through the work of Jesus, which ultimately is the work of Jesus on the cross when he died for us, making atonement, making it possible for us to be reconciled to God, for Christ to take our place in judgment, as it were, so that we don't have to pay for our own sins and we're granted forgiveness, new life and the Holy Spirit. That gospel will be explained much more fully as the story goes through. But it's there in embryo in these wonderful pithy and poetic statements. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And thirdly, recovery of sight for the blind. This is a direct reference to healing miracles. Blindness being um, a common miracle that Jesus healed and one that the Jews often associated with the coming of the Messiah, like a symbolic miracle. So Jesus was going to come and perform physical 
miracles that would heal the sick miraculously without any other intervention. Now, this has already begun to happen, but in the episodes that will follow this one, we'll see time and time again that healing is right at the centre of Jesus' ministry. And number four, to set the oppressed free. Who is oppressed? Who is pushed down? Well, as you read the gospel stories, you'll find the people who are pushed down, who are controlled by external forces, are most frequently those who are oppressed by demonic or evil forces that have infiltrated their lives to one degree or another, maybe to a very small extent, maybe to a larger extent, uh, and brought trouble mentally and physical ill health along with it. And he said he's going to set people free from such powers. We'll see examples of that following very shortly in the episodes that follow this one. And then finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is an interesting expression which refers back to a special year in Jewish life described in the law of Moses in the book of Leviticus and chapter 25. It's called the year of Jubilee and it took place every 50 years. And every 50 years, there was a redistribution of land and economic resources to help the poor people and to make sure that rich people didn't get too rich. In ancient Israel, uh, every tribe had land holdings. They had um, ancestral land that belonged to their tribe and their clan and their family. And the whole of the land was divided up in this way. But over time, people were often separated from their land. They had to lease it out to others. Uh, they couldn't work on the land for one reason or another. And after 50 years, the rule in the law of Moses was that the land should return to the original family from whoever's taken over the land. And also if people have become household servants or domestic workers or farm workers under pressure or under force, um, bonded labour, we might call it, um, they should be free. And also if they had debts, financial debts, they should be cancelled. Those three things happened in the year of Jubilee. So Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, something similar was going to happen. In other words, the benefits of God's kingdom are not only spiritual forgiveness of sins, not only physical healing, not only taking us away from the power of satanic forces, but also material in the sense that Jesus designed his kingdom to enable the poor and impoverished to be lifted up, to have God's favour. We'll talk more about this theme in other episodes. But Jesus went on and said that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's basically saying these things will be starting to happen. Now the response of the people was unusual and ambiguous because it looks at the beginning as though they're saying how amazing Jesus was and they say well isn't this Joseph's son they're kind of thinking well he's Joseph's son we thought he was an ordinary godly upright hard-working Jewish boy but now 
He's proclaiming himself to be the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. They're trying to work out how can these two things be true at the same time. But then Jesus, by using some examples from the Old Testament in the time of Elijah and Elisha, two prophets in the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, he points out that very often it's the outsiders, in this case the widow Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, who receive God's blessings when the people who should be uh, in a place of blessing uh, don't have the faith to believe. And so he's basically saying to the people of Nazareth, well, you of all people should believe wholeheartedly in me because you've known me all my life. You've, you know me better than uh, any other people in the whole country. And yet you're ambiguous, you're uncertain, and you're risking being unbelieving, not being able to accept the change that's taking place in me and my true identity as the Son of God and the Messiah. So this is the thrust of that particular second part of the passage. That's what Jesus is identifying, that the prophet isn't going to be welcome in his hometown. He's already said something similar in the discussion with the royal official uh, in John chapter 4 that we've looked at. So Jesus appears to be suggesting that the people who know him or have known him are familiar with him may find his messianic identity and mission hard to come to terms with. And that, in fact, turns out to be the case here because they immediately turn very hostile. And remarkably, this story ends in a very difficult and controversial way because they get so angry with him for suggesting that um, other people will receive God's blessing before them, that they might be unbelieving, that they, they try and assassinate him. It's an extraordinary event. They get so worked up about it. And, and in the town of Nazareth, there is on the outside of the town um, a little piece of raised land which uh, looks like a, a little mini cliff where you can literally go up and stand and, and look over and, and you could fall off the edge of it. So this story relates to something uh, that could have happened uh, in the geography of the town. But Jesus walked through the crowd and carried on his way. What an extraordinary story. What an important story this is for us. So here in the Nazareth Manifesto, um, we have a definition of what Jesus' ministry and the gospel should be. So in my final reflections, as I bring this talk to a conclusion, I just want to just give us a few things to think about uh, and learn from this amazing passage. The first thing I want to say is that from, from here, we can say without any doubt that there are five clear dimensions to the gospel message that Jesus brought. Uh, and they're uh, indicated in this passage. First of all, the kingdom of God uh, and the ministry of the church is about preaching, especially to those in need. It's about preaching. And secondly, it's about preaching that changes lives through the forgiveness of sins. This actually implies atonement and Jesus's death on the cross, though it's not stated directly in this text, it'll appear later on in the narrative. So it's about
preaching, so communicating, testifying about Jesus. And it's about the power of that message to change people and bring them freedom from sin. It's also, thirdly, about supernatural power to heal. And fourthly, it's about supernatural power to overcome any spiritual darkness that lingers within us. And finally, it's about the fact that Jesus's discipleship community, his ministry, and subsequently the church will be a place that brings about economic benefits for the poorest people. It will uh, bring help to those who are in urgent need. There will be God's help and grace to the poorest people. Now, how will this work out in the life of the churches um, to come in the future? We're, we're not told in this passage. We have to read the book of Acts. We have to study the letters of Paul and other parts of the New Testament um, to find out how this happens. But I would say that wherever your church might be in the world, in a rich country, in a poor country, there'll always be people in need. And one of the priorities of the church is to bring actual practical help to people in need in our communities as part of the gospel message. Final thing that I want to say is that this passage indicates very clearly that the gospel and Jesus himself divides opinion. Jesus divides opinion. And whilst the crowds were receiving him very warmly around Galilee and in Capernaum, we've already uh, seen a little bit of that uh, in the narrative so far. We'll see more of it, much more of it later on. There are some people who turn against him. So Jesus and the gospel will divide opinion. That was true then. It's true now in the 21st century. It's true in my country. It's true in your country. It's true in my experience. And it's true in your experience. And if you're a disciple of Christ, don't be surprised or alarmed if that should happen. Hold on to your convictions and hold on to your certainty of faith. And remember that Jesus himself in his own hometown of Nazareth, was in this moment rejected as the Messiah. And yet his ministry continued very fruitfully for all the years to come. And these two realities, for and against, the division uh, are always there in the ministry and the life of individual Christians and disciples and church communities in every nation of the world. Thank you for joining us for this episode and I hope uh, we'll uh, be together again for future episodes. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.